Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Here's a momentous day for yet another reason, and I don't know this will matter as much to you as it does to me, but we have a brand new slide template for our sermon series in the book of Mark, and um, I was excited about it because I was getting really sick of the other one, and if you had to do that every week, you'd understand, and so I found um, a new slide template for Mark, which is actually perfect timing Because in our series, there's a shift that's going to take place in the book of Mark right now. And so a a good time to involve some new sermon slide templates. You see, Mark 1 through 5 called them. Them referring to the 12 apostles, he being Jesus. Jesus called them, lived with them, taught them, trained them. But then in Mark 6 through 16, here's the shift and here's where we begin today. He sent them. He sent them. 1 through 5, he called them. 6 through 16, he sent them. All that, after all the training, it was time to actually get them to do what he was training them to do, to send them out as his ambassadors. And so today, there's a training mission that's going to happen. As, this, as Jesus hands over the reins a little bit more and a little bit more, he's going to send out the 12 apostles on a short-term mission trip. Raise your hand if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip. Lots of you, okay? And uh, I'm planning to be part of such a trip in October. I'm a little overwhelmed with it, but we're going to go to Ethiopia um, with Mike Crick and World Orphans, and um, I've never been that far from home, so pray for me. But we're going to do some legwork in exploring potential church partnerships in Ethiopia, which I think is very, very exciting. But one thing I've learned about short-term mission trips in the past that I've been a part of, especially in youth ministry, is that there are inevitably necessary marching orders or rules or regulations for the group as they go out on a short-term mission trip. And the, the purpose of those marching orders is to keep the group focused and to make them most fruitful. And so it is here in today's passage where Jesus gives marching orders to his apostles. And then we're going to look at those in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. He's going to give them some very specific instructions on how they are to operate on their short-term mission trip, specifically regarding two things. He's going to give them marching orders about their conduct in verses 7 through 11, and also about their content in verses 12 through 13. So with that in mind, would you please stand with me as I read the text? Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. It's not very long, but boy, is it meaty. There's a lot of good stuff here. So it begins, And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics, And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So would you pray with me, please? Father, how thankful we are for your word. 
we don't need to make it relevant. It is relevant. And so, God, I pray that you would open our hearts, our eyes, our ears, our minds, and just may we be totally open to your Holy Spirit speaking to us the truth that is contained in your word. Give us wills to obey as your Holy Spirit convicts us, challenges us. Uh, God, may it go forth clearly and powerfully today. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So again, we're dealing with marching orders in verses 7 through 13, given by Jesus to the 12 apostles as he sends them out on a short-term mission trip to further their training. And he gives orders regarding their conduct and their content. So let's look at the first section, which has to do with their conduct. And the first order that he gives to them regarding their conduct, the manner in which they should go about this mission trip, he says, you should go communally. Go communally and not individually. Look with me at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. So Jesus is sending out the twelve apostles on the short-term mission trip to minister throughout the region of Galilee. So let's put our map back up there and we see, hey, this is where they're looking to go. They're looking to hit all these towns and villages in Galilee. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of little towns and villages and places to go in Galilee. Um, So what would be the most efficient way to go about accomplishing this? Send Send them out one by one, individually, to cover as much territory as possible. Each one go to a different village to maximize their manpower. Go farthest and fastest. That's not what Jesus tells them to do. Instead, he sends them out in pairs, two by two, effectively cutting their efficiency in half, which challenges me because I, I like efficiency and I like tasks. And one of the things this reminds me of is that ministry isn't always efficient. Sometimes ministry is slow and it's messy and it's nitty gritty. And that's what we're looking at here. Jesus cuts their efficiency in half. Why would he do that? Well, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 gives us a scriptural basis for this. You're familiar with this passage. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one, not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So when you have a partner, when you go communally, it's so much better. Why? Because, number one, you have someone to share the burden with. But number two, you have someone to share encouragement with you when the times are tough. And one of the things Jesus is preparing these apostles for is the fact that times are definitely going to get tough. Further, in that culture, at least two people were necessary to give a legal testimony. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So what was true in that culture in a negative sense in regard to an accusation against someone would also be true in a positive sense here in regard to evangelization. It's great if you have testimony of one person about Jesus and what Jesus has done, but how much weightier it is when they had two. It even fulfilled the legal requirements of being a witness. And we see in the early church this communal nature of doing ministry continuing in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, 
the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Even the mighty Apostle Paul didn't work alone, didn't go by himself. He had a partner. And so that is the first of the marching orders here in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Go communally. The second is to go authoritatively. Go authoritatively. Look at the second half of verse 7. And Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus gave them authority. Here's the point. If the apostles are to have any success, any success at all on the short-term mission trip, they will have to rely totally on the power and authority of Jesus and not on themselves. Now, you'll remember in just the previous chapters, we saw Jesus demonstrating his power and authority over uh, danger, over demons, over disease, and over death. That about covers it. Jesus has supreme authority, and now he gives his apostles authority. They will have to rely totally on the power and authority of Jesus if they're going to have any success, and it would especially be true as they engage in spiritual warfare. Why? Well, because as we have discussed in the past, we are but made of dust, are we not? We are but dust. We are frail human beings and no match for angels. We're no match for demons, which are fallen angels. They are far more glorious, far more powerful than we are. So, us frail human beings must operate in the power and authority of Jesus if we have any hope of being victorious in spiritual warfare. And the wonderful thing is, when we do operate in the power and authority of Jesus, victory is guaranteed. We have everything we need to be victorious through Jesus. I like how the Apostle Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. He said, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So as Jesus gives these marching orders to the apostles, he said, hey guys, number one, go together, go communally. Number two, go authoritatively. Don't try to do this yourself. You can only be successful if you are dependent upon me. Number two, go minimally. This is interesting. Go minimally. Look at verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Where are my overpackers? You know who you are. You overpackers. You, you go on an overnight trip and you have to take three suitcases, right? And three pairs of shoes. For one overnight. Well, if that's you, you'd be in a world of hurt on this short-term mission trip. You'd show up with all your suitcases and Jesus would say, no, no, no. Um, because they were only able to take three things. One staff, one tunic, and one pair of sandals. And that's it. Not even headphones, you know, for the airplane so that you can tune everybody else out. The question is, why? Why did Jesus want them to travel so light? Well, because traveling light meant three things, three very important things to Jesus and his ministry. First of all, it meant dependency. It meant dependency. 
The very nature in which they go with such limited resources would, in essence, cause them to depend on God to meet their needs. It would take away all manner of self-sufficiency, which is really a good thing. It's a good thing because it says in John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. So traveling light with such limited resources meant the apostles would have to depend on God and not on themselves. And that's where the fruitfulness happens. Now, traveling light also meant humility. It also meant humility. See, when the Jewish religious leaders traveled, how did they go? Oh, they went with a big entourage and lots of stuff, lots of pomp and circumstance. They oozed pride as they went. How different was the way Jesus went? And it would not be as the religious leaders, the religious authorities that Jesus would want his apostles to go. He would want them to go as he went, to travel as he did, with a humble, gentle spirit, which really set the tone for the deliverance of the message of the good news of the gospel. Next, traveling light meant urgency, urgency. You know, forget the the snorkel and the beach toys and the suntan lotion. This was a mission trip. This was a work trip designed to rescue lost sinners from the very fires of hell. So there wasn't time for distraction and for play. Um, Rather, they would travel light and travel fast for a very specific purpose with dependency, humility, and urgency. So all of that was accomplished in them going minimally. Now, I do want to draw your attention to one of the three items permitted for the journey, and that is the staff. Because there's something pretty cool, I think, going on here. And we, we sang about it in the commons this morning. We sang a song about Egypt and about Exodus and about deliverance. That staff was a wooden rod commonly used in that culture for stability as you'd walk, but also for defense as necessary. But I think there's some important spiritual symbolism going on here. If we go back to the Old Testament, to the Exodus and specifically to the Passover. You remember the Passover, that last meal that the Israelites ate before they left Egypt? God gave them these instructions. He said, In this manner you shall eat the Passover, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Are you starting to connect some dots with me a little bit here? Right before the Hebrews left behind slavery in Egypt, God instructs them to travel light, to go minimally with one pair of sandals, one tunic, and one staff. Does that sound familiar? And that staff that Moses had, as you know, throughout his time in Egypt, it was a symbol of God's power and authority. God used that staff to lead captives to freedom. And now we have the apostles traveling light with a staff and sandals and a tunic to lead spiritual captives to freedom. And here's Moses in the past traveling light with staff and sandals and tunic to lead the Hebrew captives to freedom, which the Exodus, as we know, is a picture of our spiritual deliverance. And I think, you know how I am, when these dots get connected, Old Testament, New Testament, it's like, it doesn't get any better than that for me, so... So Jesus is giving these marching orders for conduct. Go communally, go authoritatively, go minimally. Number four, go contentedly. 
Go contentedly in verse 10. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. That phrase, stay there. Have you ever played, I think we used to do something like this in youth group called Bigger and Better. You ever heard of that? You start with something like a paperclip. And the idea is you trade that paperclip up for something just a bit better. And then you take that something that you got that was just a bit better and you trade that up for something that's just a bit better and so on and so on and so on until that paper clip you started with becomes like a car or something. You know, it, it never goes to that extent, but that's the idea behind it. Well, here Jesus is telling his apostles they will not be playing bigger and better on their short-term mission trip. Rather, when they find a house that welcomes them, just stay there. Just stay there. Don't be looking for a better situation, a bigger house, better food, a swimming pool, somehow to go bigger and better. Rather, stay there and be content and be grateful for what you've been given and once again be focused on the reason that you're there, which is not personal comfort, but rather the urgency of saving lost souls. And so in the marching orders for conduct, they're to go communally, authoritatively, minimally, contentedly, and then lastly, strategically. Look at verse 11, strategically. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off that is on your feet as a testimony against them. I love how Jesus is brutally honest with the apostles. He tells them, you know what, guys, not everybody's going to buy what you're selling. In fact, as we learned in the parable of the soils not long ago, most won't respond favorably to your message. And there will be people who directly persecute you. And so what Jesus says here is, hey, guys, be strategic. When it is evident that a group of people, that their hearts are actually that hard soil that isn't receptive to the truth, take your seed elsewhere. But before you go, shake the dust off your feet. Now, what's that about? Well, in that culture, this practice of shaking dust off their feet was very symbolic. The Jews would do it literally when they left Gentile territory. That's how much they um, disdained the Gentiles. It's like, they, we don't even want to bring your dirt with us. We don't want your dirt in our Jewish dirt. We want to leave it behind. And so for the apostles now, Jesus is telling them, to do this to the Jews who reject the message, that would have been quite the jab. And it would have certainly gotten their attention, which was, in fact, the goal. Now, from a literary standpoint, if we take a step back and we look at the passage in its context, there's something else very interesting going on here. We're actually in the midst, you didn't know it, but we're in the midst of another one of Mark's sandwiches. Did you know that? Where Mark puts together similar material to make a stronger point. All right, he kind of interweaves Elements that are similar to make a stronger point. This time we have, we, we've got sandwich number three, the top piece of bread, the 12 go. That's what we're talking about today. Next week, we're going to talk about the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And then in verse 30, the 12 return. Mark is trying to make a stronger point than he would be able to make if these were not interwoven together. So what point is Mark trying to make by inserting the martyrdom of John the Baptist into the sending of the twelve? Well, as it says, the point that Mark is making with this sandwich is that those who go on mission for Jesus will experience opposition and persecution. And as we're going to see next week, that may even mean death. As it was for John the Baptist, it was true of Jesus, 
It would also be true for the apostles, and it will be true for us as well. Don't be surprised when you are opposed, when you are persecuted. So there we have the marching orders for conduct. Go communally, authoritatively, minimally, contentedly, and strategically. Now, quickly, let's go on to the second section of the passage, which has to do with content. Just as they were marching orders for conduct, they also had marching orders for content. There's only two of them. The first of these is preach repentance. Preach repentance. That theme of repentance seems like it keeps coming up week after week. Look look at verse 12. It says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, which seems like a really bad idea. Because preaching repentance is no way to attract a following and to become popular. Because when you call people to repent, what are you also doing? You're calling out their sin. Nobody likes to have their sin called out. The apostles would certainly do a lot better if they just give some positive, feel-good, fuzzy, squishy, Oprah-like message, right? Something like this. I found this this week. I thought, we rise by lifting others. Now, it's true. It feels good. Kind of warms the heart. And there, you know, there is some truth in it, but it doesn't address the deepest need of humanity, does it? And I think that's what, again, not to be critical, but I think that's what's going on in a lot of churches these days is we get a lot of this and not repentance. Our greatest need is to be reconciled with God, which happens through repentance, which is defined this way. Repentance is a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. As we have talked previously, it's in military terms, it's an about face. For you see, in repentance, we turn away from sin. We turn toward God. We turn away from our old life. We turn toward the new life. So much of what is labeled today is, you know, those who consider progressive Christianity speaks very little, if any, about repentance. Why? Because they speak so very little, if any, about sin. In contrast, Jesus sent his apostles to preach a specific content, and that content was repentance. English Puritan... Thomas Watson, he gave um, some ingredients, six of them, of true repentance. Um, I love this because it caused you to, to kind of just soak in what the significance of repentance is. We don't have time to go into depth with all six, but they include these. True repentance involves sight of sin. You got to see it. You got to recognize it in yourself and to say, yeah, I, I, I'm a sinner. It also involves more than just seeing the sin, but sorrow for the sin. I'm truly sorry. It involves then confession of sin, then also shame for sin, a hatred of sin. Have we gotten to that point, do you think? Do you hate sin? And then ultimately the turning from sin. Repentance is a big deal to Jesus. It's what he preached. It's what John the Baptist preached. It's what the apostles preached. It ought to be a big deal to us as well, because it's only as we turn from our sin that we turn to God, and that's where we experience abundant life. So Jesus gave the apostles marching orders for content. Number one was to preach repentance. Secondly, the apostles were to preach deliverance. To preach deliverance. Look with me at verse 13. And they cast out many demons 
and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So if I were to ask you the question, why did Jesus come to earth? What would you say? I think it's a two-part, at least a two-part answer um, based on the scriptures. Number one, in a negative sense, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. It says that in 1 John 3, 8. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. In a positive sense, John 10, 10 tells us he came that we might have life and have it to the full. We did a whole sermon series that lasted like a year on John 10, 10, that we might have abundant life, both now and for all eternity. And of course, as we know, that abundant life is only possible because Jesus Christ died in our place, taking the penalty for our sin that we deserved. And now we have eternal life through putting our trust in him for forgiveness alone and turning from that sin and turning to Jesus alone as both Savior and Lord. So the mission of the apostles was to carry out the work of Jesus in both of these senses, to destroy the works of the devil and to lead people to abundance. And again, we see that imagery of Moses with the staff leading the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. Now the apostles with their staffs will lead people out of spiritual bondage. They will be about the business of setting spiritual captives free, and not just theoretically, but experientially. And so here, here's where I think we fall short sometimes as, as the church. We, we preach the gospel, and we get people to pray a prayer to cross the line of faith, and then we just hold on tight until Jesus returns. And it's like, no, that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning you see, we experience justification, which is where we are declared to be righteous and right relationship with God. But then we move into this, this, this era of sanctification where daily we're becoming conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. We grow to know him better and more. We live under his authority and we experience his power in our lives. That's abundant living. And so it's no wonder that the apostles so desperately needed the power and authority of Jesus, they couldn't lead anybody to this kind of life. They couldn't lead anybody out of darkness themselves. It was only by the power and authority of Jesus. And so Jesus, we see he gave these marching orders, not only for conduct, but also for content. Number one, preach repentance. Number two, preach deliverance. Now, let's shift to application and ask that question, how should we then live in the first section of the passage, and we're going to just, by application, we're going to focus on that first section, the, the orders for conduct. Jesus gave them their conduct in verses 7 through 11. Now, as we look to apply these, listen carefully, because maybe some of you are already thinking, wait a second, you mean I, I can only take sandals with me, you know, or I have to live a certain, I have to live like they did? Well, listen, these specific marching orders for conduct were for a specific mission in a specific place at a specific time, they are not to be mechanically applied to orders for conduct of that place and time. As a matter of fact, listen carefully, before Jesus was crucified, he said this to those very same apostles in Luke twenty-two thirty-five. He said, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, that's what we just talked about, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now... But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak 
and by one. So it would be a mistake for us to go back to what we just talked about and just woodenly, mechanically apply that to our lives in the way that it was for Jesus and his apostles. However, while these specific marching orders for conduct were for a specific mission in a specific place at a specific time, they do, however, provide some universal principles. And it's those universal principles that we want to look at very, very quickly. Our job this morning is to go through those marching orders and say, hey, how does that apply to us? So the first of the marching orders was go communally. Go communally rather than individually. And that that word communal, it ought to make you think of something that we talk about here a lot. What is it? The marks of a disciple. Disciples are missional, accountable, reproducible, communal, and scriptural. Jesus said that the way to go about his mission is as a team and not as a lone ranger. This is one of the many reasons, as we talked about with bringing people into membership, that the church, the local church, matters so very much and why we stress things here like church membership and like discipleship groups because they help people fulfill the marching orders of Jesus to go on mission communally because we really desperately need each other far more than we realize. And and that will especially be true for us if you can't read the handwriting on the wall, church, as you watch the news. We're going to need each other more than ever in the months and years to come as the culture becomes more and more antagonistic toward biblical truth. And so I would challenge you with this question. What is one step, one step you can take to go deeper into community at FBC. Maybe it's church membership, as we saw this morning. Maybe it's joining a discipleship group or a ministry team. Or maybe it's signing up for a fellowship event. We've had some good ones lately. Coming up Saturday, we've got a men's cookout at the Mortensons, June 17th, 10 to 2. Um, We also have a retirees luncheon coming up on the 13th. And we also have what we're calling, uh, for women, a D-group test drive. And so these things, these opportunities that maybe the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, that one's for you. I was so blessed to hear last Thursday night, we had 50 women coming together just to kind of hang out and get to know each other. It was fantastic. So whatever it is, identify that one thing and do it because Jesus has given us the order to go communally. The second order was to go authoritatively, not in your own authority because you have none. You have none but we are to go in the authority of Jesus, the one who demonstrated his authority over danger, demons, disease, and death, and the one through whom, with whom, all things are possible. But listen carefully. This is something I say on a regular basis. You cannot exercise the authority of Jesus if you are not living under the authority of Jesus. You hear me? You cannot exercise the authority of Jesus if you are not living under the authority of Jesus. You see, the kingdom of God and even the kingdom of Satan, for that matter, they are both organized along lines of authority. And Satan's just a copycat of what God does. But the kingdom of God is orchestrated, is organized under lines of authority. And so the place for some of you to begin the journey of going authoritatively this morning is to become realigned under the authority of Jesus. To be realigned under the authority of Jesus. So let me challenge you with this question. What is one area of your life where you are currently out of alignment with Jesus? 
What is one area of your life where you are currently out of alignment with Jesus? And whatever it is, as the Spirit speaks to you, deal with it right now. Don't wait. Confess it. Repent of it. And get back under the authority of Jesus so that you may exercise the authority of Jesus. Because without him, literally, we can do nothing. So Jesus gave the order to go communally, to go authoritatively, also minimally. And this is the one that probably captures our attention the most. This, this is not a vow to, of poverty. There's nothing inherently spiritual about suffering and poverty. There's nothing glorifying to God about suffering and poverty. Rather, this is about getting rid of whatever hinders your ability to faithfully live out the mission that God has given to you. And it's so easy for us to accumulate stuff in our lives that hinders our ability to be missional. This will look different for each one of us because what is a hindrance to you may not be a hindrance to me, but what is a hindrance to me may not be a hindrance to you. But this I know, there are probably things in each one of our lives that distract us from kingdom living. Amen? For every single one of us. And from living missionally. So let me challenge you with this question. What is one thing in your life that is hindering your ability to be on mission with Jesus? And again, it's so easy to accumulate. It's like in your house when you accumulate all this stuff and you go to have a yard sale and you're like, where did all this come from? I think our spiritual lives can be that way too. We accumulate all this stuff and we wonder, why am I having such a hard time following Jesus? Because we got lots of stuff that we accumulate. And when I say stuff, not just material stuff, spiritual stuff. Busyness can be certainly an enemy of that. Hold loosely to everything but Jesus. Next, number four, go contentedly, which I think relates well with going minimally. All of us to some degree, whether we want to admit it or not, we're playing that bigger and better game, aren't we? We have our eyes on that Next shiny thing that we're convinced will make us happy. If I just could get my hands on that, if I just had a little bit more, then I'll be content until we actually get a little bit more. We actually get that shiny thing and we discover, you know, I'm not really content after all. Oh, that we would learn contentment in Jesus alone. For with that contentment comes peace that the world cannot take away. And it is that peace with contentment that certainly stands out and gets the attention of a watching world. You hear the statistics on the news of just the, the, the numbers of people that are struggling with mental health, emotional health. And I, I struggle with that, okay? So let me not seem as if I'm casting judgment. We're having a mental health crisis in our culture and in our world. But part of it is, I think, that... Um, we lack peace and contentment that only Jesus can bring. What the world is struggling with so much, we have the answer. So I challenge you with this question. What, what is one area of your life where you are discontented? Where you're just saying, I, I need, I need, I need. And how is Jesus calling you to be content in him? Lastly, go strategically with purpose. You only get one life here, folks. What are you doing? With eyes wide open, looking for the divine appointments that are orchestrated by God, or as Henry Blackaby said years ago in his book, Experiencing God, look for where God is at work and then join him there. It's not complicated. 
Because the truth is, God is at work all around us, but do we have eyes to see it? And the will to go and join him there. And so let me ask you this final question. Who is one person that God is laying on your heart with whom to share your faith? Who is one person God is laying on your heart with whom to share your faith? And you might be saying, oh, you know, I'm I'm waiting until I know more. I'm waiting until I'm more confident. Um, Some of you have been saying that for decades and it's, it's time to get over that. I, I think back to the, the man who was delivered from the legion of demons. How much theological training and knowledge did he have before Jesus said, go home and tell people what, the, what I've done for you? Zero. Zero theological training. Zero knowledge except for what he had personally experienced with Jesus. And Jesus said, go tell. Go tell about it. You have no excuse. Don't wait. Don't give me that excuse of, I just need more knowledge. I need more truth. Well, then get more knowledge if that's where you're at. But time is short, folks. Time is short. And so we've looked at some universal principles, hopefully, of application for the marching orders for conduct. Go communally, authoritatively, minimally, contentedly, and strategically. Would you pray with me? Father, um, This is all about your people being missional, of us not focusing on ourselves, but focusing on you and the fact that you have a mission for your church, and we are your church. So God, where we have become apathetic about the mission, where we've become lazy about the mission, where we just have somehow rationalized that we don't have to be a part of the mission, God, wake us up this morning. And then, God, when it comes to these universal principles, these points of application with the orders for conduct, God, may we live them. May we do more than be people of talk. May we truly walk the walk. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.